It so happened that my office for more than a decade was in the bedroom of Charles Darwin, in the same space. And I hope that some of the spirits which uh, embodied that bedroom somehow entered my brain. Today's guest has a rather special relationship with Charles Darwin. My name is Volker Sommer. I am a German-born primatologist. I could also say I am an evolutionary anthropologist, meaning I study the relationship we have with other animals, in particular other primates. And since about 25 years, I teach at University College London. University College London, or UCL, may not be a household name like Oxford or Cambridge, but its importance to history cannot be underestimated. UCL is important because it played a pivotal role in developing our understanding about evolution. And in fact, when Charles Darwin came back from his journey with the Beagle, he first had a residence in what was called a cottage on the grounds of what is now University College London before he moved to that famous townhouse. The cottage was knocked down and UCL built a building where Professor Summer's office now stands. So how does he feel about being surrounded by the ghosts of evolutionary anthropologists past? That's a little bit esoteric and of course complete nonsense, but I pride myself with having that rather intimate relationship with uh, Charles Darwin's bedroom. But this isn't the only historical connection that has inspired Professor Summer. He told me about his upbringing and how this contributed to his fascination with the natural world and our place in it. So I, I actually grew up in Germany in a small village which is at the edge of a gigantic forest of wood where the brothers Grimm collected their fairy tales. And they did that by asking local people to tell these stories. And in those stories, they would now grant animals with the ability to speak, to have emotions, to have empathy for others, to care about others, to be deceitful and so on. And that really inspired me as a kid, because really it's the forest where Sleeping Beauty and Little Red Riding Hood and everybody was supposed to have dwelled. And since my early childhood, I became interested in if these fairy tales are true or just fairy tales. So my whole career has been about looking for similarities and differences between humans and other animals and also between these different kinds of animals. So how did he get interested specifically in primates? I became interested in primates and had the privilege of being able to conduct field work in quite a few places. So I worked with temple monkeys in India. They are langurs as they are technically called. I worked with gibbons, these are these singing small apes in Southeast Asia. I worked with them for many years in a rainforest in Thailand. 
and I spent many years studying chimpanzees in a forested mountainous area in Nigeria in Western Africa. And of course, I have visited many other places where colleagues of mine have research stations, be those about bonobos or about baboons or about marmosets and so on. Researchers often live at these wild, remote research stations for months or even years at a time in order to study the natural behavior of wild animals. It's a tough and challenging endeavor, but through this research we've learned so much, particularly about the behavior and social structures of non-human primates that we could never hope to observe in captivity. But although we have already learned so much about the behavior, abilities and societies of our closest relatives, Professor Summer believes we may have only scratched the surface. Till now, we only really understand very little about the differences and similarities between us and other animals. And if you look at it historically, it's only in the last 40, 50 years that people have really started to at least make some sense of that variety which other primates display in terms of behavior, in terms of their cognitive abilities. And it takes not weeks or months or years, it takes decades to make sense of it because like humans, many non-human primate species live for decades. So chimpanzees can easily live for 40, 50, 60 years. The same is true for gorillas and bonobos. And so their societies are very complex and they have a history actually like our own societies who have a history. So if you would have studied what's going on in Germany between 1939 and 1946, you would have said, I mean, that's a totally violent society. You know, they are killing millions of people. If you would have studied Germany in the 1990s, you would have said, well, that's a rather democratic place. People get along and so on. And the same is true for non-human primate societies. So if you study chimpanzees for 10 years, you may happen to be there when they are all getting along. If you come 10 years later, they may actually kill each other. If you study these small apes, the gibbons, they are famous for being monogamous. That is, one male lives with one female. And many researchers have claimed that they are faithful to each other for life. We happened to be there during a period when pretty much everybody was cheating on everybody and they were all splitting up. So there wasn't actually a single pair in that rainforest in Thailand which survived together for many years. So the importance of such long-term studies is that they teach us about that tremendous flexibility other animals have in their life history stages and about the tremendous variability in events that can happen in social groups. This variability within species, between individuals or social groups, remains a huge topic of interest to researchers, as it can be much more nuanced than variability between species, which was noted and used to classify animals into different groups as far back as Aristotle. 
Aristotle classified animals on their similarities and differences, such as animals that live in water versus animals that live on land, animals with blood versus animals without blood. His system was also hierarchical, with lower and higher animals, the pinnacle of this system being, you guessed it, human beings. His view was that species are fixed and unchanging, which we now know is not really the case. Aristotle's classification dominated scientific thought for the next 2,000 years or so, until a Swedish botanist, Carl Linnaeus, came along. In 1735, he published The System of Nature, or Systema Naturae, which provided a framework of classification that organised all plants and animals from the level of kingdoms, animals, and of course humans, for example, fall within the kingdom Animalia, and each of these kingdoms would be subdivided into four levels, class, order, genus, and species, usually among morphological lines, that is, how they look and how their bones are structured, etc. When the Swedish scientist Carolus Linnaeus, also known as Linné, tried to order the living organisms, he tried to do that by looking at their similarity and differences in terms of their anatomy. And when he came to try to make sense of how humans are related to other animals, and the revolutionary thing was that he actually included humans into his enterprise, he couldn't find a single fundamental difference in anatomy between humans and other creatures were, which he called monkeys and apes and lemurs and so on. And for that reason, he defined humans not by a particular trait, which can be found, let's say, in the body by just looking at humans, but he described humans by putting a Latin phrase there, noscete ipsum, which means understand yourself. That was a call from the ancient oracle at Delphi. But why is there even a need to classify animals and plants and, in general, the world around us at all? Are differences really that important? Or would we be better to focus on similarities? It's a matter of attitude whether or not you like to emphasize differences or similarities per se. There is no such thing as a difference or a similarity. It depends on what my interest is in emphasizing. And that problem runs deep when we look into how we classify organisms. And there are those, of course, who like to find what in German is called, is a very long word for which the Germans are famous, an Alleinstellungsmerkmal, which is that unique trait, which let's say only humans have, and which sets all humans apart from all other animals. It's very unlikely that we will find such a trait because let's say even if there is a single trait or 15 of such Alleinstellungsmerkmale, I could then say, well, what about, you know, blood groups? Or what about hair color? Or what about the number of digits on our hands or on our feet and we would find many other animals which have exactly the same traits. However, our attempts to make sense of us 
and our surrounding environment, including all the organisms that live there, has for, of course, thousands of years been informed by religious thought, which is as well, because of course, science wasn't able to give answers yet. But since the Enlightenment, things have somehow loosened up and people are willing to look at our circumstances in a more, let's say, objective way, which means we wouldn't necessarily accept statements just because somebody says, this is how it is. And that has been a big story in relation to the idea of evolution. So while Linné then created a genus for humans, which he called Homo, he also created two other genera, one he called Simia and the other he called uh, Limor. These are different kinds of non-human primates which are lumped in there and Linné didn't quite get it right. But the interesting point is that he was actually a bit tactical in not stating very clearly that humans are different from these other types which we which he then called primates, the first or the highest. And then the whole thing became really complicated because over hundreds of years, we really learned to understand that there are literally hundreds of different kinds of primates and how they are interrelated. And the closest living relatives of humans were only clearly described quite a bit later. So this was all confused with mythical beings, with fantasy people, creatures that inhabited caves. And while Linné put one other creature into the genus Homo, whom he called Homo troglodytes, that wasn't what we now call the chimpanzee, which goes by the name troglodytes, but has a different genus name. So the genus name nowadays is Pan troglodytes. In fact, the Homo troglodytes, which Linné described, was some mythical creature which really has never been found from the Malay archipelago, um, and it's not the chimpanzee. But that name was then taken, Troglodytes cave dweller, when German zoologists tried to describe the chimpanzee. And they then first gave them the name Simia troglodytes for chimpanzees, and then later the name Pan troglodytes. And they did that with the clear understanding that chimpanzees who look very similar to humans, if you want to accept that, that they should not be in the genus Homo. Now, over the next couple of hundred years, techniques developed in particular um, molecular biology and genetics. And a lot of people still think that the term great apes, which we typically use, applies only to these four big forms, which are chimpanzees, called pan troglodytes, bonobos, called pan paniscos, gorillas, which go by the genus name of gorilla, and orangutans 
which go by the genus name of Pongo. And the idea is that these four types of hairy big apes are separate from humans. At a glance though, it does seem like humans are something different to other apes. Our upright stance, our sparse covering of body hair and female breasts all seem to be rather unique to us. Could looks be deceiving? So if you look at chimpanzees and their close relative, the bonobo, and the gorilla, they are all hairy knuckle walkers. Whereas humans, if you want, are the naked ape who walks upright. And these impressions are misleading because we would group the chimpanzees and the gorillas and the bonobos together and the humans in a different group. You could also look at bats and birds and you would say, well, they all fly. But one of those guys are mammals. But the crazy thing is that birds are also a good example that this similarity is misleading because the closest relatives of birds are dinosaurs. And if you look at the Tyrannosaurus rex and the little finch, you will be hard pressed to say, well, I mean, that's the same kind of group of animals. So what appears just on the surface to be similar or to be dissimilar is not necessarily reflecting how these animals are related to each other. The great ape superfamily has been a subject of much debate among taxonomists. Formerly, humans alone, with their ancestors, were placed in the family Hominidae, while the great apes were placed in a different family, Pongidae. Today, Hominidae includes the great apes, that is the orangutans, genus Pongo, gorillas, genus Gorilla, chimpanzees and bonobos, genus Pan, and human beings, genus Homo. These have been further split between the Asian apes, that is the orangutans, and the African apes, all the others, including humans. And as phylogenetic or evolutionary lines were established, something quite remarkable became apparent. In the 1960s, 1970s, it actually turned out, and that's very difficult for people to get their head around, that chimpanzees are closer related to humans than they are to gorillas. And the question is whether or not it is a good idea or right or wrong scientifically to still have two genera, that is the genus Pan and the genus Homo. The heart of the debate over whether there is enough difference between chimpanzees and their close relatives, bonobos, and ourselves comes down to genetics and how you measure differences. Depending on whether you want to count every difference in a sequence, or only each different sequence as a whole, you will get a different answer. Like many things in biology, it's complicated. But assuming the differences were too insignificant to warrant a whole other genus, where would that leave our ape cousins on the Systema Naturae? It's possible that chimpanzees become Homo troglodytes and bonobos would become Homo 
Aniscus. And what about other non-morphological differences? What about cognitive abilities, for example? Might that be a reason for the segregation of genera? What about the classical example of tool use? So, you have different kinds of chimpanzee societies across Africa. There are societies where they will hardly ever use a tool or none. There are others where they just use wooden or plant-based tools to extract, for example, social insects or honey. And there are societies where they will use stones to crack nuts, but in other places they don't do that. So previously, let's say, there was the idea that yes, what differentiates humans from other forms is, for example, tool use. But nowadays we know that there are other animals which also use tools. However, depending on where they live, and they are even belonging to the same, if you want, species, they may or may not use tools. That's the same for human populations. You could say it really makes you only a human if you know the formula of Coca-Cola. Then you have very few humans who are humans. Or you would say, well, only if they build towers or temples or, or churches, that's really humans. Then a lot of humans wouldn't be humans. So it's really very, very tricky to come up with any trait which is all-encompassing for a certain type of, of animal, including human animals. This argument sounds somewhat familiar. Think back to any of our philosophy and law episodes where my guests, in various fields, all seem to have a similar view, that no one trait is sufficient to characterize a group insofar as to make a case that it should be included or excluded from our circle of concern. Moreover, those who do argue for a specific trait, for example, high cognitive function, risk excluding some members of the species they are supposedly defending. But I often wonder, why are we so obsessed with looking for differences and categorizing one another? Not only when it comes to groups of animals, but also when it comes to people. We tend to be very quick to group and make judgments on other humans depending on nationality, skin color, religion, gender identity, sexuality, etc. Is such categorization an inevitability in nature? We need categories to be able to make sense of the world. And that's why we group things. And that's very handy. So there are men and women, and there are black people and white people, and there are cars, and there are old people and young people, and there are flowers. But if you look closer into these categories, then they will disappear because there is fuzziness. The world is not black and white. It's only that we need typically to think in a black and white way, in a binary way, that we somehow are able to navigate our lives. In terms of the discussion about, let's say, gender issues, where a lot of people will say, well, I'm non-binary. What is that supposed to mean? Aren't there men and women? No, there aren't. There are many, many different ways of self 
identifying. And there are many, many variations in terms of physiology. So the same is true for our idea about species. I'm one of those biologists who says, actually, there aren't any species. Species are just, if you want, conventions for us to be able to talk about stuff. There is the famous saying by Charles Darwin that the difference between man and animal is one of degree and not of kind. Meaning there is no essence inside a group of organisms which makes them that group. If we look a little bit more careful, we will always find that there is fluidity in that sense that we should rather apply the gradualist principle, meaning a gradual similarity towards other organisms. And it is then impossible, actually, if evolution took place, that you can find a hard and fast moment when one type of organism ceases to exist and another type of organism is now originating. And for that reason, all these efforts to look for defining differences which set one type of organism apart from another type, they will always fail. It's only when organisms have died out that suddenly it seems as if, oh yes, these are all humans and over there, these are all chimpanzees because all the organisms in between, which connected them once, they have disappeared. So why are contemporary biologists still using species at all? I'm using categories. They are a shortcut, but they are not depicting the world in an objective way. That's a big philosophical debate between those who are called idealists. They believe that there are categories which are independent from single embodiments. The idea of the rose is independent from the incarnation of individual roses. The competing idea is that of nominalism, which was propagated by, by Ockham. The thesis is that it's just a name. There is no such thing as a rose which exists independent from roses, but we have to talk about that stuff, and that's why we call them roses. The same is true for there is no such thing as a human. I need to somehow group these things and communicate, and that's why I call them humans. And because we are so prejudiced in our mind that we need these categories, we often fall victim to the idea that they really exist, but they don't. So are we doomed to continue categorization? Or is this something we can overcome sometime in the future, when perhaps we're a little more enlightened? My prediction is that in 20, 30 years, people will completely give up on that idea. Then also, of course, we have to give up on the idea that a genus is really a real thing. That's just something to group stuff. But for sure, if you would have two beetles, two types of beetles, who have a genetic difference of, let's say, 5% or 1.5% or 0.5%, however you measure that, you wouldn't put them in different genera. You would just say, well, these are two types of beetles. They're all the same kind of beetle. It's just because it's about us that we make such a fuss in wanting 
to be in our own genus. In other words, as usual, we humans desperately want to feel special. That's all for this week. I would like to extend a huge amount of gratitude to Professor Volker Summer for an entertaining and fascinating interview. And as a last thought, I would like to invite you, the listener, to practice focusing on the similarities between yourself and those around you, regardless of where they come from, or whether they have fur, feathers, scales, forelegs, wings, or gills. We live in a world where people with political and social agendas are doing their best to convince us of our differences. You know that old saying, divide and conquer. These kinds of narratives, designed to hack our brains and switch on the ancient parts that still think we live in a competitive, zero-sum world, make us identify and classify people based on our in-groups and out-groups. Science has shown that these arguments are attractive because when we identify and push out an out-group, we feel a sense of belonging which makes our happy hormones ping around our brain and makes us feel more bonded with our in-group. For example, think of the last time, pre-corona hopefully, you hugged a total random stranger in the pub just because they were wearing the colours of your favourite sports team right at the moment your team scored a goal and beat the other team and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There are people, usually loud, self-interested people, who will try to hack into this part of your brain and make you think that you're under attack by a specific out-group. And right now, more than ever, it is imperative that you remain objective and reject these narratives. Millions of people are fleeing a very dangerous group in Afghanistan right now as I speak. According to my listener stats, you're likely to be listening in the UK, America, or any one of a number of wealthy nations at this moment. You, my listener, need to utilize your voice and objective reasoning here and be the voice demanding that your government help the people fleeing right now. They need urgent protection, not hindered by lengthy asylum procedures. If you saw someone in a burning building, would you try to pull them out? Or would you stand and assess their character first? The people fleeing are not extremists, or they wouldn't have anything to fear from staying. They are not bringing Taliban ideals to the West, or again, they'd have nothing to fear from staying at home. Stop allowing those who benefit from keeping us all down tell you that they are somehow fundamentally different and we need to protect our own. I guarantee you, we have the resources to protect our own, for example, housing every homeless person and take in refugees, but the powers that be actively decide not to do either. So please, if you're in the UK, sign the petition against the anti-refugee bill. If you're in the USA, lobby your elected officials to help the Afghan people, especially women, who are under the most threat from this group. If the UK and the USA had the resources to go into Afghanistan and contribute to this mess, they have the resources to help the people they have affected, and don't believe anything else. Not only do they have the resources to help, but they also have the moral obligation to do so. If you live anywhere else, please write to your politicians, tweet them, make them take notice, and in your daily life, if you hear people parroting the anti-refugee logic, remind them to think hard about who is controlling that narrative that they're subscribing to, and how they may be falling prey to manipulation by powerful people who want only more power for themselves. Thanks for listening. Today's show was written, researched, Narrated and produced by me, Catherine Cray. 
Mustafa Al-Nasari was the technical assistant, and Claire Cray is our executive producer. The music was provided by Nature's Eye at Pixabay. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Just search for The Animalistic Podcast. Until next time, stay safe, be kind. <laughs>